Welcome to the Lifehouse Church Podcast. Lifehouse is a church that exists to invite all people to live an uncommon life by following Jesus, doing life together, getting in the game, and leaving a legacy. We hope that today's message helps you grow as a follower of Jesus, gives you perspective to see yourself and others differently, and inspires you to make a difference in the world around you. Now, let's get to this week's message. Just want to say good morning, Lifehouse family. So glad you're here with us, excited to preach God's word today. And I know some of you are here today because you got the mom guilt. Mom put that mom guilt out, the, out, out there on you. It was like, you going to come to church today? And you know it's like at the end of the day, like you're like, yeah, I'm going to be there. And you know they're only going to be there because if you don't go to church, she ain't going to feed you. So, so you know it's kind of like this, this kind of, of like trade thing. So if you are here today because of mom guilt, we just want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here. Hopefully, we're going to make this as bearable as we possibly can. Hopefully, you'll learn something. But if Lifehouse is home, we want to say welcome home. Every Sunday is a family gathering. And, and I mean, honestly, we see Sundays not as just as a religious ritual. We check the box. We did church. This is the, this is the time where we come together to be reminded, where we, where we come to get our eyes off, off of us, where we can come to be reminded we're not in this thing by our selves. And, and so these Sundays are so important to us in helping us to become more like Jesus. So we're just so glad you are here today. I'm going to talk about my mom a little bit, and then we're going to kind of dive into the message, and you're going to hear how kind of my mom relates with what we're going to be talking about today. But my mom was kind of the first follower of Jesus in our family, and she was, she was the mom that when she got saved, she got radically saved. This was back in the 1980s. So when she got saved, every demonic cartoon out the house, every demonic figure, cartoon figure out, out the house, right? Like, she got, radic- she got radically saved watching a televangelist on TV. She went and found a local church, got plugged in within a year and a half, was overseeing, running the preschool. When she went in, she went all in. And when she went all in, you know what that meant? We were all in. So that means we were going with her. We were being dragged to church, couple ser- 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 you know, uh, you know, a couple of services each Sunday, Wednesday. And then when revival hit our church, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and all day Sunday, right? Like... We were, we were just in church a whole lot, and, um, which honestly I, I look back on, and at the time I dreaded it. Now I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that while on the way to school, my mom would pray over me. And she would say, God, she would say, God make my son a leader. And I'd be like, I don't want to be a leader. <laughs> well, look what happened. And, and, and then I can all, you know, because this is the same stuff I'm praying over my son as we're driving to school. <laughs> Do you know what my son is looking at me and saying? What are you saying, Jackson? I don't want to be a leader. <laughs> right? So he's, he's praying. So, but you just see how the, the power of legacy, moms and dads and families, faith is passed down. Not forcing your children to follow Jesus, but creating an environment so they can see the beauty of Jesus, the, the beauty of the gospel. To where not that you're forcing them, but you can lovingly influence them. And I'm grateful that my mom did that, but one of the ways that she even apologized for, but when she was trying to lovingly influence us to follow Jesus, uh, something that was really big to her was the rapture. <laughs> she ain't want no one left behind, especially her own children. So, <laughs> so <laughs> at a very young age, at like nine years old, she had us watching. Yeah, and, and you can see my mom there, beautiful, beautiful woman. She had me watching some of these rapture videos. Nine years old, and there was this one set that came out. It was, it was a four-series set, and it was called A Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder, Image of the Beast, and A Prodigal Planet, which if you want to watch a comedy, watch rapture movies back in the 80s. <laughs> you want to watch some comedy, low, low budget, right? Like 20 bucks to make this movie, like 20 bucks to show the world's ending, right? Like, Funny, right? But 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 like in in these series of films, like she, you know, she was, you know, trying to make sure that I knew Jesus was coming back, and he could come back tomorrow, and you need to be ready when Jesus comes back, because he could come back tomorrow. You don't know the day nor nor the hour, right? And so I remember watching one, you know, watching all of these films, and 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 I don't say this in a cussing way. I'm literally saying it like literally meaning what I'm saying. I think those videos scared the hell right out of me. Like, going to hell, I was not, I was like, I want to follow Jesus. I don't want that to happen. Like, it, it, it scared, you know, it was like, yo, okay. But also, too, 
there was a couple scenes in this movie that really marked me, right? So there was one specific scene, I think it was Image of the Beast, where, where a person was on the phone, and while they were on the phone with this friend, the rapture came. And so on the other line, when they, you know, got off and they say, you know, what in the world's going, going on, they were talking to me, and now they're not talking to me, so they hung up and they called them back, and, and they got a busy signal, because that, that's when we had phones on the wall. I don't know if y'all remember those days, but it's how old I, I, I am. Some of y'all youngins have no idea. Phones actually attached to the wall through this cord that went to this, like, phone jack thing. You couldn't carry the phone. You actually had to be attached to the string of the phone, right? So, so this happens. They drop the phone. This friend tries to call this friend that got raptured back in it, and it's a dang, 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 busy. And then they found out, oh, they got raptured. And so I, I remember this. So then the next day, I went to my friend's house, and my friends, you know, my friend's family, they were Christians, but, but they were Baptists. And growing up in a Pentecostal home, my mom, not in a mean way, but kind of in a, uh, they love Jesus, but they don't have the full gospel. Because as Pentecostals, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were like Baptists, they believe in the Holy Spirit, but they, but they don't believe in the, you know, you know, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, so, so there was kind of this like, yeah, but they're not on our level, you know? And, and I don't think that's what, what the heart of it was, but that's the way it kind of felt. So I remember being, being over there, and while I was there, I had to call my mom, and I had to like ask her something. And so I'm over at her house, I pick up the phone, I call, and guess what sound I hear? Dun, 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 dun. Literally, my heart drops to my feet. And I dropped out the phone, call her back. Hap- happened a second time. Third time, fourth time, fifth time. And I finally looked at my friend's mom. I said, the rapture has happened. <laughs> it's happened. And we've been left behind. And, the, and my friend's sweet mother, she goes, John, if the rapture happened, we would all be going. And this is what I said back to her. I said, but my mom is a real Christian. <laughs> my mom is a real Christian. And so... I love my mom. She really influenced me to follow Jesus. But there were some moments that we looked back on. I was like, I don't know if that was right. And she said, yeah, that wasn't right. We apologized to the, to the family for, you know. But, but, but it was like, can't you, can't you see how our moms lovingly influence us? They try their best. They, they do their best. But sometimes one of the things that my mom did is she took something minor that, I, that we would say in the Bible and made it the major. Like, you know, my mom, I think, spoke more about the rapture than she did about love. Not that she meant to, <laughs> but it was because it was kind of what she taught was kind of the biggest thing. We, like, we, need, we need to prep for the rapture. We need to get prepared for the, the rapture. And when I was preparing for today and talking about, because we've been in this series about, about the Bible, where, where, where we are in this series, like looking at the life of Jesus, where Jesus is, is our Savior. Like, he's the one that died on the cross in our place and for our sins. He's the one that saves us from ourselves and saves us from an eternity apart from him. He is our, our Lord. He's the one that we're called to submit our lives to and follow after. But he's not just our Lord and our Savior. We've been looking at Jesus as being our example of that when that, that we just aren't called to, you know, like we are called to look at, at the way he lived his life and live our life in accordance to the way he lived his life. And that's the power of the four gospels. It lays out for us how Jesus lived. And we've been looking at how in the life of Jesus, how central and important scripture in the Bible was. And now sometimes as Christians, we can love Jesus, but treat the Bible as a redheaded stepchild. And kind of like, yeah, you know what? I follow Jesus, but the Bible is kind of this archaic, old, fact, history, rule book, and da-da-da, when that is not the way Jesus treated it. The thing is this, right? Jesus learned, submitted to, obeyed, quoted, and taught the scripture. Therefore, as Jesus' followers, we are called to take the Bible as important as Jesus did. I, I, I love this one quote, Andrew Wilson says this. He says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. 
I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, then I will too. Even if some of, them, some of my questions remain un, unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. This is our heart at LifeHouse. Yes, we follow Jesus, but a huge part of following Jesus is taking the Bible as important as he did. So the past couple weeks, we've been building on this concept where, it's, where the first week we talked about how the Bible is not just information about God, it's revelation of God. It's him revealing himself, who he is, his character, nature, history, workings from the past, and who he is to us. Last week, we talked about how if we're going to rightly interpret this divine revelation that is given to us, we have to consider the preconceived biases we will have of the book. Where if we're going to rightly interpret it, like I said last week, in order to rightly interpret the Bible, it's vital that we become aware of our ingrained and cultivated thoughts, feelings, ideas, and subjective truths. Before we go to this book to interpret it, we're going to have biases. And we've got to be aware of those because if we're going to not dilute the revelation of God from this book, we've got to confront the biases that the culture is telling us to have and that we ingrained in our being have. But this week, I want to talk to you about how if we're going to rightly interpret this book the way Jesus did, that we have to make sure that we are majoring in the majors and minoring on the minors. Because here's a thought. The Bible is an easy book, but it's actually a library of 66 books. It's an easy book to major in the minors and minor in the majors. Where we can even come to this book and make something that is major to us, but that isn't as major to Scripture. We can take something that is, in our way, minor to us, but it's major to Scripture, and we will then try to make something that's minor in the Bible major to us. When if we're going to rightly interpret this book, we, we have to make sure we're majoring in the majors and minoring in the minors. And when I look at the church at large, like one of the things that I see the church has majored in is the end times and the rapture. And my mom, like, hello, like, y'all heard my story. And how my mom, wanted, and, and, and here's the thing, it's not that being aware of that and living in light of that is a bad thing. But Jesus, at the same time, like, we, we, like we're so wanting to know when he's coming back. We try to predict it. you got even people that, and really, I've said this before, they write books about when Jesus was coming back. There's a book written in 1988 by a NASA scientist who's taken into account all these facts, all these, where, where the moon is at, the Passover, all this stuff, and put together, Jesus has come back in 1988, and he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Oops, saith God. He did not come back. So when Jesus did not come back in 1988, he wrote another book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. Now, thankfully, when he did that, he stopped there. And he realized, I don't know if this is a good idea to keep trying to predict when Jesus goes. Here's the thing, right? We can be so focused on predicting when Jesus is coming back that we don't even focus on preparing for Jesus to come back. One of the things that Jesus said, though, to prepare for him to come back was the gospel is going to be preached throughout all the world. And we can spend time trying to predict his coming instead of trying to prepare for his coming by going out and by being a part of the Great Commission and spreading the gospel. Do y'all see, even Jesus himself said, my father knows the days and the times. Because even his disciples, because it's not like Jesus did not talk about it. He talked about, yeah, I'm coming back. But when his disciples were like, when's this going to happen? Jesus, Jesus said, no one knows the day nor the hour. Not even me, but it's set by my father, and I go and do what my father tells me to do. So even Jesus himself, but we can be so easily focused on something that is not a major. And, that's, and, and that is, I mean, just, just, just think, the book Left Behind sold 80 million copies. 80 mil, y'all. People can be intrigued by that, but we have to make sure that, 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 that this is something that our culture is intrigued by, but is it absolutely central and essential? Can we live in light of it? Absolutely. And I'm not saying it's not important, but is it most important? And that's something that we have to make sure of. And that's what I see in one of the church, in churches. Like, we can make something that's minor, major. The second thing and the, that I can see churches make major that, I, you know, isn't interesting when you really study it in Scripture is politics. Now, I know y'all came from Mother's Day. So I don't want any emails yelling at me. I don't want any emails. It's like, you can, you can send them. I'll delete them. And it'll be all good, okay? Just, just send them and... 
Not because, but, and I mean, honestly, right, like we, like the church can take politics and extend it to being a place that it is the way we think our world is going to be changed. Now, what I'm not saying is that politics is not important. Politics affect people. Or politics affect policies, and policies affect people. The government legislation can do a lot of good to influence human flourishing in our world for all people. So I am not devaluing politics, but what I am saying is that we have to make sure that we are not as passionate about converting people to be a Republican or Democrat or Democrat. We can't be as passionate about that if we aren't as more passionate about seeing people come from death to life in Jesus. Some people are greater evangelists for their political party than they are to the Jesus they serve. They are more irritated that people are Republican or Democrat than they are about the fact that they are lost and going to spend eternity apart from Jesus. They have taken something that is less than but made it more important than Jesus and the gospel. And we have got to make sure that when we're talking about politics, we put it in its proper place. Let me just ask you, how many politicians, Roman, Roman emperors, do we see Jesus endorsing in Scripture? How many times do you hear Jesus, I would like to formally give my association and validation to the Roman Emperor Augustus? <laughs> we, don't, we don't see that, but, but you see Jesus paying his taxes, right? He, he paid his taxes. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. You see him not trying to destroy the government, but you see him saying, I can take my time and try to legislate righteousness and legislate change, or I can go and be the change. And that is what I think we can vote. Voting's important. We need to vote. It's a God-given right. Thank God we, we, we live in this country where we can vote, but also know the greatest force of influence you can have is in your own self, is in your own family. And that we start there, and as we see change, then that is what can be the greatest change. But I don't think we understand, too, how much of a politically charged environment Jesus came into. It was very political. Why? Because you had different groups of people that wanted Jesus on, on their side. When Jesus came and started preaching the gospel, healing, healing bodies, feeding the 5,000, people were like, yo, we're following this guy. He had crowds. He was, I mean, crowds were following him, and the religious were getting really concerned about because people that were following them are now following him. And then Rome was like, what's this dude doing causing trouble? You have the government like what the world's going on. You have the religious people like what in the world is going on. And then, then you got Jesus saying, die to yourselves, pick up your cross and follow me. And you can tell Jesus played this kind of like middleman, but each one of them wanted on his side because he had influence. You can even think of, right, like think of the kinds of people that were in Jesus' day that wanted Jesus on their side. The first one's this, the Pharisees. And we can kind of say the Pharisees, don't hate me. I'm making generalizations. I'm trying to make what happened then related. Now, the Pharisees were kind of like Republicans. They were kind of those that we want to make Jerusalem and Israel great. We want to restore the greatness we had. So we, we, we want to overthrow Rome and get our greatness back. This is kind of what the Pharisees were. But then you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were kind of the progressive lib liberals. They were the ones that kind of compromised with the government. They're, they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give up being able to sacrifice here and sacrifice there and some of these religious things we have because we want to assimilate into the nation, right? So, 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 there was the, so they were like in regards to kind of religion and politics a little liberal. And then you had the zealots, right, where, where the zealots was, was kind of this like, uh, they hated the government. They wanted Rome to die, right? They were kind of like political nationalists where they were political nationalists and political terrorists that their whole goal was to like kill the government. They hated the Roman government, so they were going to revolt and try to overthrow them. And you can even see what one of the followers of Jesus was Simon the Zealot. He didn't even have a follower who was a zealot. But then you can even, like the fourth group of people that tried to get Jesus on their side, and for a stuttering person, this is hard to say, so I'm going to say it slowly. The Essenes. See, look, I said it clean. I just didn't think home. Essenes, they were the kind of people that were like, government's crazy, religious people are crazy. We're going to go out to the desert, and we're going to get off the grid. <laughs> they were those that kind of want to move to Gloucester. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Move to Matthews, have their own cows, have their own chickens, be off the grid, no power, got their own water supply. 
They're growing their own food, churning their own butter, a little bit of power to get by, Amish with a, you know, Amish with a little United States in there. Like, but they were just like, everything crazy. We getting away. We just, we, we just want to get away. We don't want nothing to do. So they just wanted to detach from society so, so they wouldn't have to be involved with all the craziness going on so they could live holy lives. So you had all of these sides that wanted Jesus on their side, but then you had Jesus coming to say, hey, look, I did not come to pick a side or take a side. I came to be the side. I came to be the one. But it's not, and it's not this affiliation or it's not this attachment to a political party. I am starting a movement of love, a movement of sharing and showing. The God of heaven and earth came to build his kingdom as it is in heaven. It's going to be on earth. And we can be agents. We can be disciples. We can be followers who can come and not just wait and die to get to heaven. We can actually go and as his followers bring heaven to earth while we're here. That's what Jesus came to do. Not pick a side, he came to be a side. Jesus had to correct people on what was most important, especially the Pharisees, right? There's this one particular portion of scripture, Matthew 23. It's called the seven woes, where this is like Jesus literally, like the seven woes are like seven like punches in the face, right? Jesus is just speaking truth to them, right? And, and, and so one of the ones is, is found in Matthew 20, 23 verses, you go ahead and put it up, up there, 20, 23, uh, you want to put it up there for Okay, cool. Uh, Matthew 23, <laughs> whew, Matthew 23, verse 23 through 24. Jesus talking here. He's talking to the Pharisees. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of the religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden. But you ignore the what? More important. The more important. You ignore the more important. You ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe. Yeah, so he's not saying you shouldn't do it, but he's saying, what is most important? You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. <sighs> but you see what, what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to correct what's most important. He's saying, you've been majoring in the minors, and I need you to major in the majors. You can see Paul even correcting some churches he planted where he would go and plant churches. He'd preach the gospel. He would see healings and miracles happen. People would start to follow Jesus. He would build a church. He would install leadership. And then as he was doing this, he would leave and go and start churches in different places. That's why we see a lot of different letters in the Bible. Epistles is what they're called where Paul was writing letters back to churches he planted. One in particular letter in 1 Corinthians 13 that he was writing to them because he had heard rumors about there being some pretty crazy stuff going on during worship services. So they were getting drunk during communion. Come on, y'all. Like, <laughs> drunk during, during communion. You had people abusing spiritual gifts. So they were trying to say, well, I've got this spiritual gift. This spiritual gift is better than that spiritual gift. They were abusing them in services. So, so the services were not kind of like orderly and the services were not understandable because people would bust out in spiritual gifts at different times and, you know, kind of just, it would, it, would, it would just be chaos during the services. So Paul wrote them a letter, and specifically, one of the things he told them is in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter, but we forget of what started that chapter that influenced what Paul said love was. 1 Corinthians 13, this is what Paul said. He said, if I could speak all the languages on earth, basically, if I could speak in tongues and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Do you hear what he's doing? He's like, you can have all the spiritual gifts of the world. It's not like those are not important, but those are secondary to the most important thing, the primary thing being love. He's trying to correct them to let them know this is important. This is most important. And if you don't get this major right, you'll take the minor and put it in the place of major and completely corrupt the minor when it's not that it's not important, but it's just minor compared to this. And y'all, this is what we do with church, Jesus, and the Bible all the time. 
And that if we're going to rightly understand this book, we have to make sure we major on the majors. And so I want to talk to you. Of course, I've got three points. Not two, not four. Three. Three quick thoughts. I can't tell you everything about how we keep the major stuff major, but I want to give you three big ideas, and then we'll be done. We'll, 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 We'll receive communion together. You'll go and grab your brunch, get your Sunday afternoon nap, and we will all love Jesus together. Okay. If we're going to rightly interpret the book, the major on the majors, the first thing is we have to know the difference between open-handed and closed-handed doctrines. This is something that has caused a lot of disunity in the church, which, I, which if I was an outsider, I could see why when people from the outside of the church look into the church, they're like, y'all can't even get along. Why would I want to join that? If I wanted to disagree with everybody, I would just keep going to work. I would, I would go to the pool hall or I would, you know, like... And, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's like the reason this has happened is because there's been so much about, like, like there hasn't been a good distinguisher of closed-handed issues and open-handed issues. And I love what Mark Driscoll says addressing this. He's, he says this, every Christian must use both proverbial hands to be a good theologian. In a, close, in, in a closed hand, we must put non-negotiable doctrines. And let me just pause right there because doctrine is important, y'all. As a church, it's just not what you experience, but it's what is taught. Strive so hard in preaching, not to just be inspirational, not just to make you laugh. Not, I mean, that is secondary to what I'm hopefully teaching, which is primary, which is good, solid, biblical doctrine. Why? Because what you taught, what gets taught normally happens. Preaching is like throwing out seeds. I pray that as as I preach, these seeds get in you, that as hopefully you're taught sound doctrine, that you're not just taught what I want the Bible to be, but I'm hopefully just being the mailman. (laughs) I'm like, this is what God said, this is what God said, this is what God said. I'm just, I got a blue outfit on with a hat on and a white truck, and I'm just every Sunday, hey, y'all, how you doing? Here's your mail today, you know, like, 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 the, the, and what I, what I am delivering is good, solid, orthodox, taught for 2,000 years, doctrine, doctrine. So it is vital. But what he, he says is, in a closed hand, we must put non-negotiable doctrines over which we must fight to preserve on what it means to even be a Christian. Right? It's things like, Perfection and trustworthiness of the Bible. God is a Trinitarian creator and redeemer. Human sinfulness. Jesus, sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection in our place for our sins. And salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. He says, conversely, though, in our open hand, we must hold more loosely and graciously those doctrines that are important but secondary. In that godly, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians who have prayed and studied fervently disagree over. These include such things as mode of baptism, exercise of some spiritual gifts, style of worship music, and mode of church government. The close-handed issues are the national borders that distinguish between Christianity and the other religions. The open-handed issues are the state borders within Christianity that distinguish between various teams, tribes, and traditions. It is important to determine the hand in which we should put particular things. Isn't isn't that good? Because, y'all, there are people who study this book Study the book of Revelation back and forth, like literally give their lives to it and have different conclusions about when Jesus is going to come back. And we can, and, and when it says open-handed, close-handed, at the, at the very end of the day, is that a doctrine that we're going to die over? No. Is it one we can discuss and debate, but it shouldn't divide? Yes. There, and and we, that's why we have to make sure that if we're studying this book, that, that, that if we're going to make, make, sh- make sure that we major in the majors, we have to have that distinction. Because you know one that has just gotten me you know, really, really funny is this whole predestination versus free, for, versus free will thing. Where if you've been in any debate like that, I just want to say I'm sorry. Because honestly, if, if, right, it's like, you know, because like people say, well, God's the one, like people have no choice in being saved. God just saves them. But then some people say, yes, we do make a choice that God gives us free will. You can't have love without free will and fighting and there's papers and there's books and there's all of these things. At the end of the day, do you know what the bottom line is with both of those? God saves. Whether we play a part, whether God does it all, do you know what? I'm glad we're, we're saved. If I make a choice, if God makes a choice, like we're, we got limited energy, y'all. We got people 
dying and going to hell. Let's put our effort, energy into things that are primary. And let's discuss and debate and theologize. You know, we can do that stuff. It's not bad. But when that stuff becomes primary, then we can get, it can be sideways energy that doesn't lead to what is most important. I love what St. Augustine said when they were in a period and time period, in this time period of just disunity within the church. He said this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. What? Thank you, baby. (laughs) It's like, ugh. What a line to hold where we know the, the essentials and we're unified. Those things that aren't essentials. If there can be freedom there, we let there be freedom. But in all things and all ways, we do what Paul said. We put love first. Since the third century, the church has developed ways to help us focus on what is primary. One of those ways is called the Apostles' Creed. Church for thousands of years has said this, especially if you've come from different traditions and in different backgrounds, even on Sundays, they will say it together. And, the, and it really, you know, this was created so the church each Sunday, each week would be reminded of what is most important because we'll have a proclivity to get focused on what isn't important. And so the church created these theological statements to help people remember and remind them what is most important. So I thought what a great practice it would be for us to say the Apostles' Creed together. Would you stand up with me? Because, too, I know some of y'all are about ready to go to sleep. It's dark in here. And no matter how funny I can be, some of y'all are struggling. So let's go ahead and get up. And really, the Apostles' Creed, like I said, is a way for us to be reminded and to say with our lips. You know there's power in our words? There's power in our words of, of proclaiming what is true and proclaiming what is essential in our faith. So it's going to be on the screen behind me. And I just want to invite you. Let's... I'm going to start off. Would you just join in and say this with me? Let's be reminded that as we look at what the church fathers from thousands of years ago put together, that we can say thousands of years later to help us remember what what is essential in our faith. Let's go ahead and start. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Give someone a high five and you can have a seat. My heart is we would know what is open-handed, close-handed, that we would have a good sense of this. Why? So we can major on the majors understand the minors, see them as important, but also to be able to compare and say, is this as important as this? The second thought, how can we major on the majors, is we need to put Jesus at the center of the story. You know, I I don't know if you know this, the Bible is not just a library, the Bible is almost, it is a narrative. It's a story. And there are parts to this story, and most theologians break it down into five parts that we can see explicitly, but even at the center of each one of those parts of the story is Jesus. The five parts are first off creation, where we see Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. It says, in the beginning, God. God said, let there be, and there was. Created the world, created man, created woman and created a beautiful place for them to dwell and he called it good and I just want to remind you God didn't create you because he needed you God didn't create you because he was lonely God created you out of the overflow of his love for you this is how I know that God is love is because 
a, an essential truth we hold is that God is Trinity. He's three, yet he's one. He's one, yet he's three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I know that can be hard intellectually for some of us to grasp, and we try to come up with ways to kind of think about it, right? Like water, and he can be solid, liquid gas, whatever, right? Like, uh, you know, and we try to take something that is hard to understand and make it understandable when really at the end of the day, I think one of the clearest things that God did to help us understand this more than one being one is the first human relationship he created on earth was marriage. What did he say happens in marriage? Two become what? One. That even in a marriage, we can see that what happens when two people commit in covenant to loving each other, sacrificial love, that, that there is this back and forth of we are distinct, we are separate, but we are one. That's the way it is with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's three at one. And the Father, Son, and the Spirit operate in this beautiful, continual flow since, since like, they, they always were, right? Like, they, they always were. And, and, and so when they, because they were in this Loving, like Father, Son, and Spirit, just in this loving relationship. Self-sacrificing, self-giving. And when they said, let us create, because that's what it says in the original language, let us, not let me, let us make man in our own image. This creation wasn't because they were lonely. It was created so they could overflow what they were in and of themselves experiencing. That's so important. That, that you know that God created the world not because he needed it, but because he wanted to love it. It's hard to love something you need because then you can abuse it. And that's why he didn't, he didn't have any need in and of himself. He was sufficient. He was good in and of himself. But he wanted to pour, overflow his love on people. And so he created the world. That, that's the first part. Then we see right after creation is beautiful, then the brokenness happens. Adam and Eve, we are them. They are us. On the tree, if it was a Cinnabon, like I said a couple weeks ago, <laughs> if the snake had a Cinnabon, I'd be like, yo, give me that Cinnabon. What did, well, what did God say? I don't care. Give me, give me some extra of that white stuff that, 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 that put on there. Give me that thing, right? Like, but, but then what, it broke relationship between God and man and between us, like between people. You see, right after that happened, you had abuse. You had... You had murder you had all of these things happen because it was relationship with god was broken then you can see the bible goes into what israel right god chooses a man abraham and he says hey through you i'm going to build this nation because god wanted to show himself not just his power and his glory in himself he wanted to show himself through a specific nation so he built the nation israel he gave them promises he gave them covenants he showed them miracles he gave them the law he said this is how you're going to be distinctly different from every other nation around you and how people are going to see who i am is going to be shown through you and when we see man israel's craziness right 40 years in the desert because they're taking them four days kings were buck wild crazy god never wanted them to have a king but they were like we want to have a king like every other nation does so god was like okay here's your king he was crazy and it was just this cycle in the midst of all this craziness, there were promises and prophets coming that, hey, there's going to be a greater king that's coming. Even the first prophecy about Jesus, Genesis chapter 3, it says that right after they, they, they broke God's word, they broke God's law, it says that there will be an offspring from the woman that will eventually crush the head of Satan. That was the first prophecy about a savior, about Jesus coming. So you, so you can see Israel, right? And then Israel has these 400 years where they don't hear a prophet. They don't hear any promises. They don't hear anything about what God's doing. But then we see the four Gospels. We see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come on the scene. And then that's where we see Jesus come on the scene. You know, it starts off with genealogies. Gene genealogies. Good God. Genealogies. Who wants to read a uh, genealogy? But it's tracing back Jesus, not just to kind of like Adam, Abraham, but it's saying this is really the Son of God. You can, you can see then Jesus begins his public ministry, and he starts to do miracles and lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, rises from the from the dead when he rises from the dead he says hey i'm gonna be leaving i'm gonna actually send the holy spirit actually better that i leave because when i leave i'm gonna send with you the holy spirit that's not just gonna be with you but it's gonna be in you and then you are gonna now through the power of the holy spirit go and build the church so jesus did the great commission and he said hey you're gonna go out and you're gonna now not not just talk about me but you're gonna build a group of people that are going to be me the church there you go there's a five minute whatever of the bible 
But we see Jesus as the centerpiece of all these. Creation, Jesus was there. Let us make man in our image. Jesus was there from the beginning of creation. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the fall. Jesus said it in Matthew 5. He said, I did not come to put away the law. I came to fulfill it. What Israel could not do, I'm coming to fulfill. You see, the Gospels, this is where we see Jesus. He is the centerpiece of the Gospels, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And then the church, Jesus is the one that sends the church. There's, there's this kind of graphic that I saw that I think really displays how Jesus is the center of Scripture. The Old Testament points towards him. You know, scholars say there's over 300 prophecies declaring that this Savior will come, where he will come, when, when he will come, how, how he will come, what people he will come from. We see the Old Testament points towards Jesus, but then we see the New Testament pointing back to him. And just saying, hey, this is the life Jesus lived. This is what Jesus purchased for us. But Jesus ultimately is the center of Scripture. I'm going to show you a quick three-minute video that I saw. It's called Truer and Better. Because I think if we're not careful, if we don't put Jesus at the center of the Bible, we'll put ourselves at, at the center of it. So then we'll start to do things like, well, I'm David. The, the Goliath in my life is my boss. And my five stones, <laughs> you know, we'll try to make up five stones. And if we don't know Jesus is the centerpiece of every story, you know, Jesus is the main thing, the main character. If we're not careful, then in our me, 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 self-self culture, we will try to put ourselves in a place that only Jesus is supposed to be in this book. And instead of saying, hey, how can I find myself in Jesus' story? We'll make Jesus' story about us, and we'll get glory instead of him getting glory. So I want to show you this quick three-minute video that I saw that I thought was really, really powerful. Now, look, you're going to see a watermark on it. It's not because we're cheap and didn't want to buy this video. just want to make this clear, right? Because we tried to find this video and buy it, and the place that it was selling wasn't selling it no more. So we had to download this from YouTube. So it's going to have a watermark. But don't think we're cheap. It's just the only one we could find with this video. So I want you to check this out, and I want you to see how Jesus is the centerpiece and the main thing of Scripture. Check this out. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us 
He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Come on, isn't that good? And as we're encountering this book, it's so vital for us to know who the main thing is. And it's, it's him. And to not just make the Bible about us, but to realize who the Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament is pointing to. It's pointing to a truer and better, and it's Jesus. Not only do we need to know open-handed and close-handed issues, right? Like, that, that's important if, if we're going to get the main things right. We need to, just totally forgot my second point. I just had it up. <laughs> Jesus, I'll put Jesus at the center of, of the story. My brain is leaving, y'all. I need some more coffee. Um, put, put Jesus at the center of the story. But do you know what really helps you get this book? Isn't this when you put Jesus at the center? And this is going to sound really elementary. But it's, it's when, when you know the main thing, you can find the main thing. And just how important it is that we, like, not just know about Jesus, y'all, but we know Jesus. Because y'all, here's, here's the thing. In this country, like it's astounding to see how many people, like what percentage of people that say they know and follow Jesus. It's like 80%. I'm like, really? But really what I think people get confused is knowing about and knowing. Knowing about, like having a concept that I know a particular person existed is different than intimately knowing a person. And I think in church, it's so easy for us because we're so littered with Jesus and, and kind of, and, and, and that's why I, I talk about Christian dumb is different than Christianity. Christian dumb is a cultural form of Christianity that means if you are a part of the Christianity, Christendom crowd, it gives you benefits. So you are a part of this because it gives you benefits instead of saying, no, like, like, Knowing about Jesus is different than actually knowing him. And when you encounter and you really know Jesus, and there is a, I'm just not using Jesus to be my better self. I'm just not using Jesus so, so I won't go to hell, or I'm just not using Jesus so I can really, at the end of the day, use him to get what, what I want. But, but there's a pure, I am following Jesus because of what Jesus did for me. So in response to what he did, I'm going to give all of my life and turn all of my affections, time, talent, treasure towards him and follow him then what that does is it sets you up to encounter this book in a new, fresh, and real way. Because you know him, and when you know him, then you can find him in this book. I love what, what we see in Luke chapter 24, right? Jesus dies on the cross. The same people that, died, that saw him die on the cross, Luke chapter 24, this is where you have some people running to the to the. Um, running to the tomb. They get to the tomb. Jesus isn't there. And so they're, they're walking on this road called Emmaus. And while they're walking on this road, they're talking about what they just saw. Like, yeah, we saw this dude die. He got put in this tomb. We came back to the tomb. He's not there. What in the world's going on? It says that Jesus came up and started to walk beside them and talk with them. And we're going to actually glean in here, Luke chapter 24, a little piece where we see Luke bringing about and sharing about this encounter that these two people had with Jesus. It says this, he said to them, and he being Jesus, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So he's kind of, of, of like saying, like, what was written in the, 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 was about me? He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them. So Jesus is doing a Bible study. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And, and then Jesus, like, he, he does a Bible study with them. He shows them in this book where he's at, where he was prophesied about, where it said that what just happened, how it would happen, where it would happen. And he says, this was explained to me in the scriptures. And then these two people go back and they tell the other disciples, the other followers, what, what the heck happened, this encounter with 
Jesus, and this is what they said. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? And what I love and what my heart is as I read that, where my mind goes is my heart is up for those that call life house home. That when you read the Bible and you know the main thing is the main thing and the main thing is Jesus, that when you open this book and through through the power of the Holy Spirit, it reveals to you who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, that there will be this like burning inside of your heart of like, oh my God, I'm encountering the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm learning about him and there would not be like heartburn, right? But there would be like that Holy Spirit burn of like, I am being spoken to by God. I mean, y'all, let's be honest. As we're following Jesus, there's going to be seasons where the Bible is going to be like, you're reading a phone book. Why did I even say a phone book? No one even knows what a phone book is. I'm so old. No one even know. We're talking about phones and phone books. But sometimes the Bible will will feel like that because it's, it's, it's kind of how sometimes our faith can be. But my hope and heart is that in seasons of your life, this book would be so alive that because you know the main point, you're able to find the main point, you're able to address your biases, you understand this, not just information about God, this is revelation about God, that there would be this like, oh man, I get to open this book every day and encounter the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Creator, the Savior, who loves me, who died for me. And now through the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired this book, I get to receive this revelation. Not just know about, but know them. There was one, one last scripture that I want to close on today. Worship team, y'all can come up and we're going, to re- we're going to have a time of response. But something particularly, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees studied the Bible. They knew the Bible like no one else's business. Well, there's this one particular scripture in John chapter 5 where he's kind of talking with them and this is, this is what Jesus says. This is the message Bible. So take this with, you know, you know, this is a paraphrased version, but it's very similar if you were to look in the NIV, the NLT. But one of the things, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says this, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But then he says this, but you miss the forest for the trees. What is, it, what is he saying? He's like, you're taking the minor and you're missing the major. You're only seeing here instead of coming back and seeing the narrative and the story. He says, you're missing the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you. And you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you won't. And what I think he's saying is y'all know about the Bible, but y'all don't know me, and you won't understand the Bible unless you know me. And that's what I think. If we're going to ultimately count this book the right way, you just don't, not need to know about him. You need to know him. You need to know him. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. And if today's message helped or inspired you, feel free to share it with someone. If after today's message you have questions, need help, or just want somebody to talk to or process with, just shoot LifeHouse a text to 757-690-2401. For more information about LifeHouse, you can visit us at lifehouseonline.church. That's lifehouseonline.church.